0: It's a mistake to try to force changes in your gut microbiota. You can't micromanage an ecosystem. Probiotics likely do not exert their impact by colonizing the host, but rather they work transiently to be antimicrobial, reduce leaky gut, improve motility. Patients will suffer and flounder for years without doing that correctly. People have setbacks. That is normal. That is okay. It's pretty humbling how quickly people can heal when they have all that kind of...
1: Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast. Today's episode is definitely with a crowd favorite. I've been a fervent follower of Dr. Ruscio for years now, years. He is a brilliant man. He knows so much. His book, Healthy Gut, Healthy You is a wonder in tackling various digestive issues and bringing your gut back into balance. He's not wedded to one certain paradigm that he refuses to change. He really does look at all of the studies. He doesn't cherry pick. It's just, it's all there. Reading his book was fantastic with the amount of studies referenced. I will put a link to it in the show notes. The show notes will be at slash healthy gut. I am supported in part today by one of my favorite companies, that is Bioptimizers. I just had the founders, Wade Lightheart and Matt Galant, on the podcast. They make a superstar probiotic called P3OM. They have a new magnesium supplement. They have mineral support. But what they're best known for is their Masszyme supplement. Enzymes are super important. They're basically the workhorses of digestion, and they break down your food into usable macro and micronutrients. As we age, our enzyme levels actually decline. As they go down, it can really set the stage for chronic indigestion, gut issues, yeast and mold overgrowth, malnutrition, all these things, <laughs> not a fan. That's why I am a huge fan of supplementing with enzymes. You can use them with your meal to help digest your food. And Masszymes, created by Bio Optimizers, it's actually one of the most complete, potent digestive enzymes out there. It has over 102% more protease, which helps digest protein, than the nearest competitor, and 300 to 500% more per serving than the most popular brands. That's really crucial because protein is actually the most complex macronutrient to break down. And when it's not digested, it actually can putrefy in the gut and create a variety of problems. Think inflammation, bloating, so many things. Mass also works at every pH level from 2 to 12, so basically every stage of digestion. You can also take it while fasted for its proteolytic effects. Despite any changes in supplements in my life, I am always taking proteolytic enzymes during the fasted state. I've just found the benefits to be almost incomprehensible when it comes to things like allergies, scar tissue buildup, inflammation, and so much more. You can actually watch Masszymes dissolve a steak. This is true if you go to masszymes.com slash Melanie Avalon. You can try it today, completely risk-free, and they have a 365-day full money-back guarantee. Just go to MassSigns.com slash MelanieAvalon and enter the code MELANIE10 and you will receive a 10% discount off your order. So again, that's MassSigns.com slash MelanieAvalon with the coupon code MELANIE10 for 10%. I am a Himalaya-partnered show, and if you follow the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast in the Himalaya app, you will get early access to the podcast 24 hours in advance, so definitely check that out. Also, please join me in my Facebook group that is Paleo OMAD Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. We discuss everything there, biohacking, gut health, all the things. So I would love to see you there. All right, so without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful episode with Dr. Michael Richet. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. So I am super excited to be here today with a a fellow podcaster who pretty much needs no introduction. If you are at all familiar with gut health, GI stuff, probiotics, podcasts, all of that stuff, I am pretty sure you probably know this man very well. I'm here with Dr. Michael Rousseau. He is the author of Healthy Gut, Healthy You, The Personalized Plan to Transform Your Health from the Inside Out. He is a a doctor, a clinical researcher, he has his own practice. And one of the things I love about Dr. Ruscio is, well, there are a lot of things, (laughs) but um, he looks at all of the studies, all of the latest data, he's working with patients. He really paints a very comprehensive picture, especially when it comes to a topic that can be so complex and so confusing for so many people, which is GI health. And I mean, there are very few people that I honestly would look to for their opinions on all of the latest data and like wholeheartedly trust his opinion on pretty much anything related to that and that is Dr. Rousseau. So thank you so much for being here.
0: Wow, well thank you for the intro. It's a pretty big bill for me to live up to, but I will I will do my best.
1: <laughs> well, I mean it from the bottom of my heart. I just love how you stay so on top of all of the research and bring that to both patients and clinicians. And I never feel like you are, which I think a lot of, especially figures in the health world, regardless of intentions, they often, I think, have like an idea of what they think is most likely right and then sort of push that forward when looking at studies and things like that. But you, I just feel like you're always looking at the research, you're looking at the data, you're looking at the patients and you are... And if things are changing, you're open to saying, you know, hey, things look different now than maybe what we thought. And I really, really appreciate that. I know it's really complex and complicated in our health world today.
0: Well, thank you. I mean, I, I tried just to, I guess, make my my shtick is maybe not having a shtick and just trying to always be open-minded and being critical. And, and so it makes it a little bit easier, I think, to Be constantly changing and evolving my opinion because I'm not vested in one theory like low carb or Mediterranean or the power of probiotics or the danger of probiotics. It's more so, well, let's see what the evidence shows. And knowing a body of evidence that's going to be changing and we're going to be learning more. And so let's just keep kind of fluid, keep this kind of core philosophy, which doesn't change much, but some of the nuance shifts and as data changes, we keep kind of molding that clay into the best offering that we can for people. So thank you. I mean, it's a lot of work and it's, it's nice that people are noticing it and that it's appreciated.
1: Yeah. And I do wonder, I actually had an epiphany the other day about this whole concept. And that was that I think for some people who have never had any acute health issue that they're aware of, like a lot of people will start a new dietary protocol or something and it works fantastically and it just keeps working. And I can see I can see how if that happens to you and it's always working, why you would be more likely to push it. But I think when people have personally been in a place where things are not working, despite everything that you're doing, that it also could, at least I know for me, <laughs> make you more open to being open to things. I don't want to say that's the case for you, but I do know you have your own personal health history with GI issues. So I was wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit about that and and why you came to where you are today.
0: Sure. Well, I'll try to give you the, it was a long row, so I'll try to give you the short version of it. But when I was in college, I was pre-med and I was also a college athlete and used to feeling, you know, when you're 20, you feel pretty darn invincible. And that was nice, <laughs> of course, but boy, all of a sudden, for reasons I couldn't determine, I was having brain fog, crippling insomnia. If anyone's ever had insomnia, you, you sleep for forty-five minutes, you're up for thirty minutes, you sleep for forty minutes, you're up for twenty minutes. It's it's just it was very severe insomnia, obviously, and just really crippling. So I'd be unable to sleep at night, tired during the day. Brain fog, my mood was starting to have these lulls, and I really couldn't figure out why. One thing led to another. Eventually, I found a doctor who posed the idea that I could have an intestinal issue. And in my case, I had an intestinal infection. Intestinal infections aren't super common, but definitely imbalances in the gut are. So mine was kind of the worst that you can have a pathogenic amoeba infection. And this was wrecking havoc in in my gut and causing inflammation, ostensibly leaky gut, and leading to all these symptoms. But before I figured that out, and this is one of the things I try to save my patients and, and our readers from, I googled my symptoms. I thought I had hypothyroid or poor thyroid conversion. I thought I had mercury toxicity. I thought I had adrenal fatigue. I thought I had low testosterone. So I kept pursuing all these really dead ends. I, I might get a little flicker of improvement, but nothing really that addressed the cause of the issue until I took steps to improve my gut health. And that really taught me that there's a lot of noise out there. It's not to say that adrenal supports or testosterone supports or thyroid, either medication or supports are never needed. But in my experience, and this has definitely been true in my patients, oftentimes those things are pursued before one's gut health and it leads to the same result I had, spinning your wheels, spinning your wheels, spinning your wheels. And then what do you know? The patient that's seen three doctors all using different thyroid approaches and getting the patient nowhere sees a gut-centric provider like myself, and within a few months, all of their symptoms are gone. wasn't actually their thyroid in this case. Again, it's not to say that that always happens, but it does happen a disturbingly high percentage of the time. So, I went into natural medicine and pursued everything that I was noticing helped me personally. And there was a lot of good, but there was also maybe equal amount dogma. I remember being a student and thinking, holy cow, these natural providers are just zealous about gluten-free diets. It was like gluten-free diets and fish oil could cure the world. (laughs) It's like, I mean, I agree that those both can be very helpful, but does everyone, does 100% of the population need a gluten-free diet? Turns out, no. Turns out, the best evidence we have suggests about 3%, according to a study by Volta at University of Bologna. But it doesn't stop people from really inculcating people into thinking that everyone needs to be gluten-free. This is one example. So I try to bring to people now this balance where. A lot of great stuff in natural medicine, a lot of good science in natural medicine, but also a fair amount of dogma, a fair amount of overreaching, a fair amount of overzealousness. This hurts people by making them afraid of food, making them think they have to do copious amounts of testing, causing a financial burden. So if we can find the right balance between things that work, things that have been scientifically validated, and an open-minded progressive approach, but also filter out some of the craziness then we can really hand people a great model for improving their health. And so that's what I'm doing now in the clinic with some of the research that I'm publishing with, with the book that I wrote, Healthy Gut, Healthy You, and really just trying to carry the torch forward for, we have a lot to offer people, but this new generation of doctors has to really kind of be cutting out some of the wastefulness and fear in the model and focusing on what works. And boy, if you do that, people just see phenomenal results.
1: Yes. Well, I, I love that so much. And I, and I believe so many listeners can relate to that so much about trying to find, you know, the thing that's causing the problem. Is it the thyroid? Is it the heavy metals? Is it Lyme disease? Is it, you know, going down all of these holes and trying to find the root cause? And then so often, like you said, the root cause or the root answer, maybe, maybe the solution lies in the gut. So simple question with Maybe a simple answer, maybe a complex answer. Why can the solution often be in the gut for all of these other things?
0: Mm, Great question. Well, for a few reasons, one of which is the fact that the largest density of immune cells in your entire body is located in your small intestine. Now, why does that matter? But we know that the immune system is the main driver of inflammation in your body. And so, if the gut's not healthy, then you have this highly immunoactive area that is also unhealthy or perturbed. We could use a a loose example of this this leaky gut, where the gut lining is unhealthy, it's not allowing the right stuff in and keeping the right or the wrong stuff out, and therefore, the immune system is called in to use its instrument of cleaning, inflammation, but as a byproduct of that inflammation, you can have a litany of symptoms joint pain, brain fog, skin issues, of course, digestive issues, depression. Now, that is a theory, and here's something that every healthcare consumer should be looking for in one's argument. That is a theory saying that the gut connects all these systems, but we do have clinical trial evidence showing that you can reduce disease activity and inflammatory markers in rheumatoid arthritis, to use a joint example, to reduce anxiety and depression, to use a brain example, to reduce IBS symptoms, of course, to use a, a gut example, and even some preliminary data showing the ability to benefit hormones, both thyroid. Actually, one study showed that probiotics could reduce and or stabilize the dose of thyroid medication needed. And other data points have shown that patients with digestive infections can actually reduce and stabilize the amount of thyroid hormone they need after treating those gut infections. So the important thing is there's not only this academic mechanism we can draw out that might connect the gut to these, these systems, we actually have interventional clinical trials proving it. Here's a group of people, here's their illness, here's the gut treatment, and boom, a positive result for whatever's being measured. Now, I also want to throttle back a little bit and be careful not to say that the gut is not a panacea, but it's pretty remarkable the wide litany of things that can improve When we improve one's gut health, in part because of this common inflammatory component. Also, because the majority, well, 90% of your calories and all of your nutrition is also absorbed in the small intestine and, and everything is absorbed in the intestinal tract itself. So, if that's not working well, then you may not be absorbing all the nutrients adequately from your diet. So, those are two big reasons, the inflammatory piece, and then also the nutrient absorption piece. And it shows us how the gut can lead to resolutions of so many things from brain to skin to joints and why it's a really great starting point if you're not sure where your symptoms are coming from.
1: Yeah. So it seems that there are, I mean, so many huge pieces. And I'd love to dive deep into them even further. Like you were talking about the immune response, the inflammation, then there's the gut microbiome and then there's actually absorbing the, the nutrients. And I guess the pickle is that we ideally need all of these things to be functioning correctly. So it can seem a little bit overwhelming to address all of those at once, but then maybe that means that a healing approach in general, as you discuss in Healthy Gut, Healthy You could address all of these things. So I'd love to dive deep into some of these things if you're if you're down down for it.
0: Yeah. I talk about this all day long. So we can go wherever you want.
1: <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So starting with the gut microbiome, in general, do you think that there is a quote healthy microbiome, because there are all these studies on the different types of bacteria that we can have. And, you know, some are correlated to health markers and then some are correlated to worsening of conditions. And, but it seems like, it seems like they can be so different, especially from different populations and depending on your environment and your genetics. So do we, I mean, can we even say what a healthy gut microbiome is? Does it even matter? (laughs) What, What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's a pivotal question and and one of the main posits I develop in healthy gut healthy you is it's a mistake to try to force changes in your gut microbiota. It's a mistake for a litany of reasons. The main reason is because gut microbiota research and I should maybe even take a step back and and draw a distinction. There's clinical kind of gastroenterology meaning we know as one example, albeit a bit controversial, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or SIBO, can be problematic. We know how to test it. We know what correlates with certain symptoms, and we have treatments that correlate with symptomatic improvements and also correlates with the lab testing showing improvements in correspondence with the symptomatic improvement. So that's clinical gastroenterology. micro biota research is more so looking at the thousand some odd species of bacteria in your gut, trying to group them into clusters called phylum, trying to look at, is there any relationship between phylum ratios and disease or specific species and disease? And we are so early here that no credible researcher in this field, save maybe one or two exceptions we can come to in a minute. No credible researcher for the majority of microbiome testing is advising that you do a test like uBiome, Viome, American gut, and try to use that clinically. It's one of the most common questions I get from patients. It is one of the most commonly incorrect beliefs that patients are walking around with, probably because these companies are marketing their tests. And I think most of them are not marketing them nefariously, but there's enough vague suggestion that people kind of easily make their own conclusion that these tests can help with disease. But even on my podcast, we've had arguably one of the top researchers in microbiota research itself, Rob Knight, and he's very plainly said these tests cannot be used clinically. So there's a very important distinction to draw, which is we're learning a lot about the academics, about the microbiota, there's still a lot we have to learn. And that hasn't yet gotten to the point where we can translate it into eat this diet, use this probiotic, use this antibiotic, use this antimicrobial. We just haven't got there yet. The one exception is a lab called Day2, which has independently validated that their microbiota assessment does appear to be able to predict glycemic response to foods. So if someone is struggling with dialing in their diet that last little bit, this may be able to help them determine, wow, I do not respond well to rice, but I respond well to potatoes. So I'm going to focus more on potatoes and less on rice to help one really craft an individualized plan for their diet. Now, that's definitely a refining piece, Because for most people, the first few steps are food quality, frequency of eating, whether they're fasting or eating regular meals or finding some sort of mix, sleep, right? These foundational pieces are are probably the most important. But if someone's really trying to fine tune their diet, then the lab day two can help predominantly from the perspective of blood sugar regulation. But for the person who has brain fog, joint pain, non-responsive IBS, gas, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, reflux. The microbiota tests don't really tell you anything. And it's unfortunate because so many consumers are kind of hoodwinked into thinking that these things do. But if you can focus on the clinical gastroenterology side, There's a world of therapies that have been shown to help various cohorts of patients, patients with brain fog, patients with depression, patients with joint pain, patients with this kind of recalcitrance with their thyroid medication. But there's a distinct line between the clinical gastroenterology interventions and the microbiota research, which is more so in the phase of academics, data gathering, looking at trends and looking at relationships. Now you hear about the latter of these two much more because it's it's in vogue, but just because it's popular doesn't mean it can actually help you. So there's a really important distinction to draw there between clinical interventions and more so academics. And I hope that's not too boring, but it's an important concept to really understand.
1: No, I think it's super important. And So it sparks some ironic follow-up questions for me that now I'm not even sure how relevant they would be, because I did have some questions about trends that we do see with gut populations. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that, but then it will be in the context of what you just said, which is the fact that we don't even necessarily know the implications (laughs) of these trends.
0: Yeah. And so here's maybe a philosophical construct we can lead with to, to help this all tie together. There's likely a bi directional relationship between the microbiota and the health of the host. Now, what we would like to be the case is that unhealthy bacteria, we change those unhealthy bacteria to healthy bacteria, and now we have a healthy host. So, what is appealing, is I'm overweight, I have brain fog, I have joint pain, it's because of these bacteria. And if I can just change these bacteria, now the corresponding disease condition or symptom will go away. That doesn't really seem to be how this works at all. And I write about this in Healthy Gut, Healthy You, and I actually list examples where what we thought would happen is actually the opposite of what happens. And I summarize this as you can't micromanage an ecosystem Now there's another way that this may work, and I think this holds more plausibility, which is the health of the host dictates the health of the environment in which the bacteria grow. So interventions that improve the health of the host improve the soil from which these bacteria grow, and then therefore lead to healthier bacterial populations. So we can still intervene to improve the health of the host and improve whatever disease or symptom one is is suffering with. But it's not this kind of direct line to this bacteria high, that bacteria low, we do X, those things rectify, and now the person gets healthier. It'd be great if things were kind of that neat and nice, but there's better support for the hypothesis that the changes in bacteria that we're seeing are often not causal. They're actually associative to whatever disease state is present. And then the question becomes, what is best for the individual in managing that disease state? Does that make sense?
1: Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th Annual Biohacking Conference Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohackingconference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits The longest-lived populations drink wine, the polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight, it's what they eat, All right, now back to the show. No, I think that is a a wonderful thing to bring up and something I actually did want to dive deep into with you is this concept of the ecosystem in the individual and this idea that the healthiest ecosystem is ultimately the healthiest microbiome for the individual. So regardless of if it matches up what we see in these studies, that it's a it's a comprehensive view question about that. Do you think that any given person based on genetics, well, I guess really based on genetics is what it would have to be, that they naturally have some sort of quote, ideal microbiome that will best support them throughout their life? Or is it a matter of their environment could change so various different microbiota or various different ecosystems could support their health? The context that I'm coming from with this is I know like we'll see in studies that the gut microbiome can rapidly change based on different dietary interventions. So could it be that various different healthy diets could support different ecosystems in an individual and those could potentially all work? Or do you think based on genetics that a person is predisposed to one sort of ecosystem? Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. And So we might be able to term the ecosystem types as what's sometimes referred to as enterotypes. So this is kind of like the gut microbiota type that you have. And there's three, maybe four enterotypes. And these do seem to have, in part, a familial characteristic to them, whether that's genetic or phenotypic. It's hard to say. There's very likely a combination of the two, meaning both the genes and the environment. But then the the bigger question is, how can we use that to improve the health of an individual? And that's where things become much more challenging because we come back to this problem of cause and effect. Here's an example. We take sedentary individuals and we start tracking their microbiotas over time. When those sedentary individuals start exercising, the health of their microbiota improves. So we could erroneously say these unhealthy people have unhealthy bacteria and these healthy people have healthy bacteria. But if we didn't, what's known as isolate for, or use our regression analysis to tease out the fact that the healthier people, quote unquote, healthier people are exercising and the unhealthy people aren't exercising. We may have missed the causative factor for why the healthy people have healthier bacteria because they are exercising. So this is where it gets really complicated to say there is a one best microbiota. And there are a litany of examples supporting how the theory that there is a or a couple best microbiotas breaks down. Another great example, one of the most effective diets after you get on a generally healthy diet. So step one is always get off of processed foods, eat fresh, whole unadulterated foods. Now that can be higher carb, lower fat, lower carb, higher fat. There is wiggle room with the macronutrient breakdown, but the first step is food quality. So after we get that step out of the way, if patients still aren't responding to diet, the next dietary intervention that has an impressive amount of data to support it is the low FODMAP diet. And the low FODMAP diet tends to not feed the intestinal bacteria. So if feeding intestinal bacteria was so incredibly important for an individual, then how is it that a diet that reduces the food for healthy bacteria and therefore to a degree may actually starve healthy bacteria leads to a reduction of inflammation, a reduction of leaky gut, and improvements in symptoms like gas, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, reflux, and even in inflammatory bowel disease. So what may be happening there is the individual's immune system is hyperreactive to the resident bacteria. So otherwise, normal healthy bacteria, but in an environment where the immune system is overzealous, now those bacteria may be a problem. And so it's not only the microbiota, but it's how the microbiota gets along with the immune system. And this is how things that may in effect starve intestinal bacteria actually can lead to an improvement in the health of the host. So there's many examples where we see interventions that may not be best for the microbiota are actually better for the host. And this is why We should take a big step back and not try to force your gut microbiota into one shape, so to speak, because what that does is discounts all of the clinical gastroenterology science and rather tries to pigeonhole you into a theoretical based upon what we see in the academics.
1: Okay. So that is fascinating. And that was something that I was fascinated by in your book was when you were discussing how our bodies could have inflammatory responses to both, and like what you just said, to both quote, good and quote, bad bacteria, which that brings on a whole nother aspect because then it's like, even if you do have a, in theory, you could have, I guess, a a wonderfully healthy, awesome gut microbiome. But if you have the inflammatory immune response, I mean, what, what would you do then?
0: Right. And, and that's what's so paradoxical, especially when you look at inflammatory bowel disease literature, that interventions that are lower in fiber, which feeds bacteria, lower in prebiotics, which feed bacteria, actually lead to reduced inflammation and reduced disease activity. So, you know, it's not to say that everyone should go on a lower fiber and a lower prebiotic diet, but because of the immune overzealousness in those individuals, the same dietary approach that works for otherwise let's say you've got a really healthy robust person maybe they're a crossfitter they're eating lots of sweet potatoes and tons of vegetables and starches and they're feeling great and the the kind of moderate to higher carb higher fiber higher prebiotic diet works well for them it's not going to work well for everyone and so that's that's where the wheels kind of fall off the argument and i guess to say it plainly for people with the most compromised gut health the microbiota academic recommendations are actually the worst. And this is the ultimate paradox, which is the people who need the help the most are being given these answers that are more so, in some cases, academic and actually making them worse. And that's why it's it's really important that we look at everything through the lens of clinical gastroenterology, because that ensures, as one example, we don't take a inflammatory bowel disease patient and put them on a super high fiber high-prebiotic diet because we know that has a tendency to flare those patients, even though the microbiota academics suggest, well, we got to feed the bacteria because the bacteria release short-chain fatty acids. The short-chain fatty acids are anti-inflammatory, and if inflammatory bowel disease is a disease of excess inflammation, therefore, the high-fiber, high-prebiotics which make short-chain fatty acids will reduce the inflammation and will reduce the disease activity talk to any inflammatory bowel disease patient. They will tell you the last thing they want to do, especially when they're flaring, is have high fiber, high prebiotic foods. For the most part, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush and make too absolute of a statement, but there's a glaring example of how, if we look at academics and then conjecture from there, we can end up harming people because we're not looking at this juxtaposed to what the clinical gastroenterology evidence tells us.
1: And so for those who do find themselves... In a state like that, where they are struggling with GI issues and distress, and they find something like a low FODMAP diet, which is not feeding the bacteria, if they find that therapeutic, find that helpful, what are your thoughts on longer-term approaches following a diet like that? In theory, can the immune response change if you starve out the, quote, bad bacteria long enough, or can the immune response just change the bacteria in general, and then foods can be brought back in? Or do you think there are some people that just you know, long-term, they're better on a lower FODMAP type approach.
0: Yeah. And this is a great question because one of the most common, I guess, counter-arguments that's invoked when someone mentions low FODMAP is, well, it may not be a good diet long-term, which we don't really have good evidence to support that question. There was one study- I believe it was a two year follow up. I, I may be off in that detail, but there was one long term follow up study that found that people drifted to a broader FODMAP intake and the diet continued to keep their symptoms at bay. And there were no remarkable issues, nutrient deficiencies, or, or other health problems. So I think the best approach here is, is really to start with an approach that may be a bit more restrictive, like healing, and then gradually work your way out and try to find the broadest diet that works for your gut. So it is important to put on the table the notion that just because a somewhat strict adherence to a low FODMAP diet for four weeks really helped you does not mean you should be doing that for four years. So over time, as one gets healthier, to your question, yes, they should be able to tolerate more foods. They should have the aim of expanding their diet and having the broadest diet possible, but not everyone's going to get to a point where they can eat the same stuff. Some people really improve their ability to eat dairy. Others don't. Some people improve their ability to tolerate gluten or soy or FODMAPs or even alcohol, and other people don't. So everyone's gonna be a little bit different there, but the goal will always be heal your gut and move to the broadest diet possible. And and that also ties in another piece I know you wanted to touch on, which is the mindset piece. And this is where we really should kind of provide a a countervailing recommendation, because yes, dietary restriction can be helpful, but we don't wanna stay in that mode forever. The goal should be healing in the short term, for greater function in the long term. If you think about someone who had a really bad knee sprain, you wouldn't have them wearing a knee brace and avoiding activity forever, right? It would be a short term and then they would start doing some stretches and some mobility and gradually pushing out the boundaries of their of their movements until they got back to normal. Same sort of thing is what we want to do with diet.
1: So happy you brought up the mindset piece because I was actually talking to a friend about this the other day. Because we were talking about how fast the intestinal lining cells are supposedly supposed to heal. <laughs> like the turnover rate is, you know, supposed to be very, very fast.
0: Yeah, about 72 hours. Yeah, it's
1: quick. So we were like, how can it be that intestinal cells can, in theory, heal so fast? And also that with the gut microbiome, they'll see such changes, you know, rapid changes with dietary changes. So like, there's all this potential for very fast change. And yet- people find themselves stuck in these chronic gut situations for years and years, oftentimes even following, seemingly trying to follow things that should be fixing the situation in theory. So do you think with that, it's a matter of the person is not, hasn't found the right food combination that is supporting an anti-inflammatory state? Is it the diet? Is it what they're eating? Or is it also this immune response and how, Is it possible that the immune system is always going to have an inflammatory response to certain things? So there's like no way around that. And then that's why I'm wondering like, maybe is it just the mindset thing? (laughs) Like maybe the fear response, not even on like a conscious level, but maybe like a subconscious level of like the limbic system and the immune system from that aspect. So I don't know if there was a question in there.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's really all of the above. Now, think about a pyramid. I always picture and I actually list in Healthy Good, Healthy You, an interventional pyramid. You have the foundation, the bottom level of the pyramid, that's your diet and lifestyle. Then level two, I would put there probiotics as your primary intervention. Then level three, antimicrobials of of various sorts, which can be more powerful in their ability to kind of balance out the gut than the probiotics. And then at the pinnacle, we have certain things like elemental diets, which are pre-digested, low residue, liquid diets, immunoglobulin therapy, some of these more nuanced therapies. And so we start at the, at the foundation and the foundation is diet. And what happens with some people is they run in a low carb camp. And so they go low carb, low carb, low carb, low carb, every iteration of low carb. And- At some point, someone tells them, try a kind of higher carb diet. They make a few changes there and they feel fantastic. Or someone's in a paleo crew and they just keep forcing down vegetables, 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 all the while they really need to be doing a trial on low FODMAP. And eventually they get to that. And it may take some people years until they actually make that discernment or get that advice. And then all of a sudden they start moving forward. So, Some of this is just getting competent advice that is not limited to the scope of your peer group. And that's what I lay out in Healthy Gut, Healthy You. There's a few nuances. There's paleo and low FODMAP, I would say, are the the two general changes because paleo tends to remove inflammatory foods and low FODMAP tends to reduce foods that kind of feed bacteria. That's not every dietary nuance, but that's the kind of west and east on the compass, so to speak. But we don't stop there, and the challenge is some people never go beyond that, or when they do go beyond diet, it's just, I read a blog on so-and-so, and so so now I'm going to try this, and there's no process. There's no, okay, here's all of the available therapies. Now, how do we organize them in the most logical sequence of steps so they will work synergistically and continually lead you to the healing endpoint you're trying to get to? So that's the second rung of the pyramid, and we have probiotics. ton of confusion there, and what you see on the Internet is mostly marketing claims. Many of them are not necessarily untrue, but they're just giving you the one slice that kind of promotes a given probiotic, rather than taking a bird's-eye view and helping someone walk through a more experienced view on how to figure out the best probiotic protocol for one's gut. Now, what this may look like is it takes someone a year and a half to finally go low FODMAP. Then they go low FODMAP, they move forward to 30%, yay, great, but they're not all the way there. So, if they can get the next piece of competent advice quickly, they go on a good probiotic protocol. And then, whoa, another 30%. Hey, I'm at 60% overall improvement. This is pretty good. Now, the next thing they may need to do is administer a course of antimicrobials in conjunction with that foundation they've laid. And now they go from 60 to 90. And if you're at 90, you just give your body some time and usually you will get the rest of the way there just through inertia. But you would be surprised, you would be amazed at how simple that sounds as I've just explained it, but how patients will suffer and flounder for years without doing that correctly. And I guess rightfully so, you know, internet education isn't really built for that. It's more so, hey, we're going to talk about X today or we're going to write a blog about Y today. So I understand how kind of our soundbite culture doesn't necessarily lend itself to that, but you know, those steps to navigate up the interventional pyramid when executed appropriately can lead to someone who's been suffering for years. In fact, we were talking today about, we released a conversation with one of our readers and she had seen, I I believe she had said she had worked with three functional medicine doctors and they did lab testing and all this stuff to personalize the therapies for her and didn't really get anywhere. She read Healthy Gut, Healthy You and within a few months, she was seeing improvements she hadn't seen prior. So I, I don't say this lightly. I really wrote that book to give people a roadmap. But those are some of the components. And then mindset is also important because if navigating that interventional pyramid is not couched in a framework of empowerment and positivity, then people will gradually be grabbed by the grip of fear because they will think every time they have a flare, every time they have a setback, ah, something is wrong. Or anytime they eat a food off plan, ah, I'm doing all this damage. And those little moments of fear chip away at you and can lead some people not to be able to heal. So all these things come together and you can heal quite quickly. Quite quickly is not two weeks, right? But that might be in 3 weeks I feel 10% better and another 3 I feel another 10 and then what do you know 3 to 4 months later I feel 70 80 90% better so relatively quickly I guess you know it should be defined as such but when all these things are done correctly someone can really improve quite remarkably. It's just needing to have the right roadmap and then the framework that's positive and empowering. And then all those things can gel together. And it's it's pretty humbling how quickly people can heal when they have all that kind of at their disposal.
1: Oh my goodness. So many, so many things you touched on and follow up questions I have. I will say for listeners though, because I've interviewed you, Dr. Ruscio on the intermittent fasting podcast, but this is the first time on the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast. And so for listeners, something that Dr. Ruscio has done in Healthy Gut, Healthy You that I just think is brilliant is. And I mentioned this before with you, but it's sort of like choose your own adventure. Like it doesn't have one protocol that that everybody follows uh, because obviously that's not going to work the way the book is laid out and kudos to you for coming up with this template. But basically you can go based on where you're at and then where you need to go. So there's not just one protocol in the book. You can make it fit you, which is pretty awesome some follow-up questions about everything you just said. So you were speaking about probiotics and antimicrobials. And I think a lot of people, especially when they feel like they're struggling with an overgrowth situation, that they need to start with antimicrobials. like They need to get rid of the overgrowth.
0: Of course. Uh, it makes me want to pull my hair out. People have everything so backwards.
1: And then bring in the probiotics. So I think a lot of listeners' the ears probably perked up when you were like, "Wait, probiotics, or when you said probiotics and then antimicrobials." So could you expand on that a little bit the role of probiotics when somebody does have an overgrowth?
0: I'd love to. We want to look at one's gut like a garden. And I don't mean this in this, you know, airy fairy, I'm going to burn sage, <laughs> but you know, scientifically, if we look at your gut as an environment that needs to be tipped back into balance or like a garden that we're going to methodically improve the health of, you don't take a garden that is being scorched by sun and has nutrients devoid of any soil and then go and pull the weeds out and expect food to grow. That's kind of what happens when you just jump right to antimicrobials. It's like, oh our garden environment is crap, but we're just going to go ahead and yank out these dead weeds. And then we're going to say, well, what the heck? How come nothing is happening? Well, we have to cultivate a healthy environment. The healthy environment encourages the growth of healthy bacteria, discourages the growth of unhealthy bacteria. Once we do that, if more aid is needed, that's when Antimicrobials can be leveraged as a nudge to get you the rest of the way toward the balance, but we don't start with antimicrobial therapy. Now, probiotics are anti-inflammatory, and they actually help reduce leaky gut, and they are actually antimicrobial in and of themselves five clinical trials have found that probiotics can remove SIBO from the small intestine. In fact, one study found that probiotics worked better for patients who had SIBO as compared to patients who did not have SIBO. They're antifungal, they're antiparasitic. So you can get so much benefit out of first, starting with diet and lifestyle, and that sounds easy, but like we talked about, the, the paleo person could spend a year and a half in dietary purgatory suffering until they actually tried low FODMAP. And then in a month, they're seeing marked improvements. On top of that, then, you know, now that the soil is getting healthier, now we add the probiotics. The probiotics may clean out SIBO if present, may help combat Candida if present, may help reduce leaky gut, may help also with motility. And so, all these things are now improving the health of the ecosystem. If someone still has some lingering symptoms, now the system is so primed for balancing. The antimicrobials are given at the right time where they will have a lasting effect and a minimal chance of someone regressing after stopping the antimicrobials. What happens oftentimes is people try these things kind of haphazardly. They try antimicrobials and they get some results, but not all the results they want. And then they do a probiotic for a month and that one wasn't quite good enough. So they go to another one and then they go to another one. They just don't have the guidance to put these things in the right order. And the probiotics one is such a, such a <laughs> beautiful example where not only are people doing it at the wrong time, but oftentimes patients are only using one probiotic where really if we can use three in my experience, that can literally be the difference between people either not needing to do antimicrobial herbs like oregano or needing to do them. And the three probiotics, I'll be quick here and then we can, you know, we can go into the details about the the three probiotics if you want, but pretty much every probiotic in the market can be classified as one of three categorical types. And what often happens is someone tries right now in the paleo community, soil-based probiotics are are big. And so they try that probiotic. And eh, yeah, I saw some results, but I didn't see all the results I wanted to. So once that bottle is open, I saw a blog about Saccharomyces boulardii, which is the other categorical type. And I'll try that for a little while. Yeah, that helped a little bit too, but not completely. Okay. I'm at the local health food store and there's a lactobacillus and bifidobacterium predominated blend here. The other third categorical type. I'll try that one for a little while, but they never use all three together. And I should mention, this is more so my theory, but I've, I've seen this pan out pretty well in the clinic. When patients use them together, it's a difference between having a stool that you would sit on with one leg, one probiotic compared to three legs, three probiotics. It seems that using the three probiotics together, because they all have slightly different action, actually is more conducive to helping to balance the microbiota or more accurately lead to the symptomatic resolution that one is trying to get to. So one probiotic can help, definitely, and there's ample evidence to show that, but that may be for some people like a one-legged wobbly stool that isn't able to balance super well. Whereas three probiotics at the same time, three legs of the stool, more conducive to balance.
1: Can I just... (laughs) Sorry, you said stool. And so I I initially thought like stool.
0: Well, hopefully, you wouldn't sit on that kind of stool. That'd be kind of gross.
1: I know, I don't know, but just because of, just because of our, you know, what we're talking about. And then you, when you were painting the picture, I was like, wait, I'm not quite following this in my head. And I was like, oh, he means like a chair. (laughs) Um, So, okay. So quick clarifying question. When you mentioned before, um, seeing clinical trials showing success with probiotics, are those typically looking at lactobacillus bifidobacterium blends? I'm assuming
0: there are. Over 500 looking at Category 1, Lactobacillus and Bifidobacterium blends. There are over 100 looking at Saccharomyces boulardii, Category 2. And depending on the types you're looking at, anywhere between about 20 and 40 clinical trials with the various soil-based probiotics, Category 3.
1: Okay. So... Again, this is conjecture and looking at mechanisms and theories besides maybe what actually works. But what do you think are the implications of the fact that like lactobacillus and those type of bacteria are not like a normal member of our gut microbiome? Because aren't they um, compared to like bifidobacterium, which and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe they are a resident member?
0: Yeah, most supplemental bacteria do not colonize you. Some of the soil-based do, or may be able to. I don't know if that's fully been bore out, but it's a great point. And it's an important point to understand, which is probiotics likely do not exert their impact by colonizing the host, but rather they work transiently to be antimicrobial, so fighting fire with fire, to reduce leaky gut, to improve motility, to reduce inflammatory cy- cytokines and inflammation. So yes, it's, it's not that, okay, I was cesarean birth, I was not breastfed, and I grew up in a really kind of clean environment, so I I didn't get a lot of colonization in my formative years, so now I can take the magical probiotic to put all those back in. That's not how probiotics work. It's important to understand that because probiotic naysayers will go, oh, well, probiotics have been shown not to colonize you, therefore they're all poppycock. It's like, well... I wouldn't call meta-analysis after meta-analysis showing improvements in IBS, in IBD, now two meta-analyses showing that probiotics can improve either anxiety or depression, initial research showing the ability to potentially reduce the amount of thyroid medication needed. I surely wouldn't call that poppycock, but I, I would say it's important to clarify And for us as a community, not to claim that probiotics are going to colonize you. They have a transient benefit. And that's not a bad thing because that that tells us that the adult microbiota is somewhat resistant to long-term colonization. That's good because that protects us from infection. But it also means that probiotics aren't going to stick, but we don't necessarily need them to stick because it's more so about cultivating that healthy garden that healthy soil. And then once we've cultivated that, most people with healthy diet and lifestyle can maintain the improvements. But, and myself included in this, some people notice with a low dose of probiotics, most of the time, they tend to be, I would say, more impervious to, I went out and ate some crappy food, had some alcohol, wasn't sleeping well. So, I want to be careful not to represent it as people will need these in the long term. Now, if you're someone who's, has, who's been dealt a, a tough hand, then you may kind of preempt having to live a very restrictive lifestyle or diet by using probiotics. But I think for most people, you'll probably be okay without them, but you'll notice you're a bit more impervious to life when you are on them.
1: And so another question about, because you spoke about the initial colonization of one's gut microbiome at birth and how that might be affected by, you know, C-section versus a natural delivery, also antibiotics, things like that. So the actual initial colonization in a person and their gut microbiome, is that also speaking to completely different strains that we cannot potentially supplement via a probiotic?
0: Yes. There's about a thousand bacterial strains in your gut. So probiotic, even the most comprehensive probiotic, you're maybe going to get 15, maybe 20 strains. So again, it's not that probiotics are going to recolonize you, but they have a beneficial effect on the ecosystem. And so you could think about it almost like, again, using the garden analogy, I don't know how many bacteria and fungus typically occur in a garden, but I'm assuming it's well over a thousand. So it's not to say that when you improve the health of a garden, you have to give fertilizer or water that replaces all thousand some odd strains, but by improving the health of the environment, you encourage the growth and a flourishing of populations as opposed to if you have inflammation that discourages... Some of those thousand, some odd from flourishing. And there's kind of this almost inverse relationship we can think of. Inflammation may allow unsavory players to thrive. And then if we reduce your inflammation, those guys get pushed down. They're not fully eradicated, but they get pushed down into the smaller density of colonization where they should be. And the healthy populations start to bloom and flourish. And it's an important concept. You know, we're not changing what's actually happening in the mucosal bacterial colonization, but we're we're pushing and pulling the ecosystem. And if we're doing things right, we're kind of pushing it or nudging it in a direction where the good guys can flourish and the bad guys are discouraged down to a level that's considered normal.
1: Okay. And then some follow-up questions about that inflammatory response. So something you mentioned in your book was that if a person is having like an inflammatory response to things, if they try, you know, just adding in some sort of probiotic that they might have, you know, a reaction to it based on their immune system. Is that something that could be that you can write out? So like if somebody wants to try a new probiotic and they seemingly, I say seemingly, cause it's so hard to know like why you're reacting to what or what you're reacting to. But so say they try a new probiotic, a few things. How long should they give it before judging? <laughs> and is it possible that bringing in some sort of probiotic could potentially at the beginning create an inflammatory response, but that the immune system would adapt to it? Is that like, so should somebody commit to a certain probiotic for like a month?
0: Yeah, it's a great question because we certainly don't want people to, I guess, suffer through something needlessly, but we want to know. Is this good suffering or, you know, have I, have I hit the kind of the, the reevaluation window yet? So the reason why the probiotics that I use in my clinic and also the ones that I recommend in Healthy Good, Healthy You are broken down into the three categories. And it's not just all in one pill is so that for that small percentage of people who are reactive, they can pinpoint if the reaction is coming from one of the probiotics. This is rare, but I, I would say in maybe five to ten percent of people, just giving a very loose estimate, they may react negatively to one of the categorical types. So this is part of the reason why we don't have an all-in-one probiotic, but rather we break them out into bifido blend, Saccharomyces boulardii, and soil-based three different formulas. Now. What can also happen is people can be having an adjustment reaction. So, time helps you adjudicate is it a, my body does not tolerate this, or my body is adjusting to this? If you get to a week and any negative symptom is not starting to abate, then it's more likely that you're reacting to something. So, there's two ways you can approach this. If someone has a history of being reactive, then I would recommend starting one categorical type of probiotic at a time and giving it a week or so. And if they're having a negative reaction and their reaction persists past a week, then that category is probably not for you. What will happen in most people is maybe a little bit of turbulence for a couple of days and then things start to get better and then add in the next one and repeat. So if any type of negative reaction that correlates with when you started the probiotic lasts longer than a week, then there's a good chance it's not going to work for you. An adjustment reaction usually starts within the first day or two and is starting to abate by day three, four, five, and is either gone or about gone by a week. So that, that's really important to understand that because you're right. You know, We, we don't want to jump ship prematurely. But we also don't want to have someone suffer needlessly. And the reactions can be anything. For some people, it could be their skin breaking out, joint pain. Most commonly, you may see bloating or constipation, but not for everyone. So there's not a symptom that tells you it's a reaction. It's the timing. So if any symptom starts at the onset of the probiotic and lasts for longer than a week, that categorical type probably does not work for you but that is rare. So just to frame that for people, I see a subset of my, my clinic are pretty reactive patients. And even the most reactive patients can usually at least tolerate one of the three.
1: And then quick question about one of those threes, the bifido blend. Do you ever see benefit in splitting that further down? Because I know a lot of people will often try just bifidobacterium or just like lactobacillus type, like the lactic ones.
0: Yeah. Good, good question. You could, I don't think that you necessarily need to. If you look at most of the clinical trials, they tend to use, but there is variance, but but they tend to use either a blend of various lactobacillus and bifidobacterium predominantly or Saccharomyces polarity, or a soil-based. Some of the research studies use a mix of category one, category three, or category two and category three, but the majority have have kind of broken them out. And then there's this other emerging philosophy that is, well, we we need the probiotics that that are evidence-based and we need the, if you have constipation, we need the probiotic that's been proven for constipation. Well, that's all good in theory. And and it appeals to me because I'm kind of a science snob, but when you actually look at the data, there have been, I believe, four different, similar, but different formulas, probiotic formulas that have all shown improvements for constipation. We mentioned anxiety and depression earlier. Predominantly, it's been category one probiotics, but the formulas have been different amongst those studies. For SIBO treatment, formulas have been different also, similar but different. So if you haven't wasted a lot of time going through these studies one by one by one by one and looking at the constitution of the probiotics used in each of those studies, it could elude you that, boy, different probiotics all seem to be able to achieve the same endpoint. That's actually a good thing. That tells us that probiotics aren't like drugs. If you give someone metformin, it does one thing, right? If you get them cortisol, it does something else. Probiotics because they are helping to heal your gut and encourage balance in your microbiota, they are treating a root causative issue. So that can manifest in a wide litany of different improvements. So it's more about finding the probiotics. In this case, I recommend using all three that will help to improve gut health. And then once the gut health improves the secondary symptoms improve after that. That's the goal. Not, well, I read that this is the best probiotic for depression, or this is the best probiotic for joint pain, or this is the best probiotic for constipation. Usually what's happening there is there is one study that supports that. And so it's not untrue for a marketer to tell you that, but they're just leaving out that you have leeway with other similar probiotic formulas. And so it doesn't have to be that complicated. And rather than trying the one formula for depression, the one formula for constipation, not realizing they're almost exactly the same, you can put all that marketing jargon and spin off to the side, find a quality formula from each of the three categories and focus on that. You can get down into more granular where you do just bifido or people will also recommend non-lactate forming or non-histamine forming and For a whole litany of reasons, you don't have to do that. I see a lot of histamine-sensitive patients, and they may react to one formula, but if we personalize, like we talked about a moment ago, the net effect of probiotics tends to be antihistamine. And this throws people, because they're getting down into the academic minutia. But wait, probiotics contain histamine, except for these special ones. Well, that is true. They contain histamine, but they also combat a number of factors that cause high histamine. So they end up being net antihistamine. This is how we can put a probiotic into a SIBO environment and see SIBO go away. How is it we can give bacteria to bacterial overgrowth and then the overgrowth goes away? Because the net effect was antibacterial. The net effect can be antihistamine. And that's not conjecture. There's a number of studies using probiotics in histamine-mediated conditions, like seasonal allergy and rhinocondriotis, where these are histamine-mediated conditions that got better with this regular Category 1 probiotic that contains histamine, but the symptoms improved because the net effect of the probiotic is actually antihistamine.
1: Okay. Glad you brought up the histamine because that's the context I was personally coming from was the whole histamine thing. epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Hi friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair, and it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels, and I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD, and historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through nad ivs and nad shots i actually never did an nad iv for a few reasons one they are extraordinarily expensive two i've been doing the shots which i liked because they were easy to do that said they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards and i've heard that the iv makes a lot of people feel unwell so if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first is like a barrier. I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me anti-aging help with your stress help with lack of sleep and or optimize your partying you need these patches friends and i'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys 100 off which is incredible so to get that discount just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer that's i-o-n-l-a-y-e-r and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner eventually want to order so you never miss out and if you really like something and want to keep it you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price friends i'm obsessed this is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalanceCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So, again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at melanyavalon'scloset.com. That's closet.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's melanyavalon'scloset.com. Okay. Going back or coming full circle back to the mindset and all of that stuff and the protocol. So regardless of where somebody is at with their starting point, do you think that if somebody seems to be in a much more dire state of GI distress compared to somebody else who might just be looking to tweak things, because we see these changes happen potentially fast, does that mean that honestly anybody can make changes you know, can see improvements in a month or so? Or can your state be so bad that it's going to take a long time?
0: (laughs) Good question. For most people, once they're doing the right thing, they should see at least the initial flickers of improvement within a couple weeks. Now, that's not full resolution. But if you're doing the right stuff, there should be this general trend a slow march of improvement. Now, you may hit a snag and have a little setback along the way. That's normal. Don't freak out. But there should be this gradual march upward, improving, improving, improving. There is perhaps one exception to this, which is in those that have what I'll loosely term limbic imbalances, who may have been suffering for a long time, may almost at this point expect to be sick. Also, potentially those who've had childhood abuse of various sorts. And in these patients, what I've seen or what I used to see was we do everything that other patients respond to, and they seem like they're getting a little bit better, but they never seem to get over the hump. And what has been very helpful for these patients is some type of limbic retraining therapy. And what I think happens is these patients are so expectant to be sick that they can't get their limbic system or their, their emotions out of that phase of expecting to be sick. And so let's take someone who gets brain fog. Their brain fog is actually much better than it was a month ago but they get so angst when they have brain fog that they work themselves into this stress response and they almost inhibit themselves from being able to move forward because they can't look at it half as glass full. Like, hey, I am 30% less brain foggy than I was last month. All they can see is <gasps> I have brain fog again. And they fire fired this pathway in their brain to think about fear and angst and anxiety. So, what limbic retraining can do. And I highly recommend either Ashik Gupta's program called the Gupta program, G-U-P-T-A, or Annie Hopper's DNRS program. And this is a commitment. It's about an hour a day of kind of this intensive meditation, but it can be very helpful for patients who are stuck in that mental rut. And when those patients start doing that, they start improving within weeks. So for all of these people, the road from zero to 100 might be a year, but you should feel like you're making progress every few weeks, every step along the way. And so even though the road, let's say maybe is a year, you don't feel discouraged because you're feeling like you're making progress.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you brought up that whole aspect of the limbic system because I, I really think that can be really, really huge for so many people. Almost makes me want to do just sort of like a, a placebo trial probiotic run where I just take a placebo pill and say and like say this is the this is the, the gut microbiome in a pill or something and see what happens. I would actually love to see a study done on that a placebo effect study with um probiotics. Have you seen anything?
0: I have not seen a study of that exact nature, but there has been a summary performed and in IBS trials, so those with digestive maladies of various sorts, the placebo effect in randomized control trials, where the placebo is trying to be minimized, averages about 45%. So, placebo is powerful. As as another example, there's this debate regarding thyroid hormone. There's T4 alone, your levothyroxine or your Synthroid. And then there's these combination therapies like Armour or WP Thyroid. And there's debate about what is best. In some of the studies, They have, in very elegant designs, actually, they will take patients, they'll they'll take their medication, and they know they're going into a trial where they're going to study what the best type of medication is, but they don't know what they're going to get. The patients that are taking levothyroxine and the researchers take it away and they give them a, a white bottle, they don't know what they're taking they report the same amount of improvement as people who are then changed over to what's supposed to be quote-unquote better, the you know armor thyroid. So placebo actually can have the same effect as a medication change. Just when someone is thinking a change may be occurring, they can actually start to report benefits. So th- this is one of the reasons why we should be careful. And I do think that in time, people should always be working to expand their diet. At very worst, we can placebo them in the right direction and try to find the minimal effective dose, if any dose at all is needed, of the support items that one might be using, including probiotics. And this is the, one of the last steps in Healthy Good, Healthy You, which is creating the expectation of being able to curtail or to minimize. Because you're right, placebo is is very, very powerful.
1: Yeah. I love that so much. And then sort of speaking to that as well, how So say somebody decides to follow, you know, a plan is outlined in Healthy Gut, Healthy You or, you know, commits to some sort of plan. How can we follow that plan and see it as a plan and something to follow, but at the same time not feel like it's this rigid fear system where, you know, we have to do all these things and where we judge every single reaction. I guess, how do you encourage your patients to have a a healthy approach to a plan to make them feel better?
0: Yeah. Also a very important question. And like we talked about earlier, the way the information is just conveyed makes a big difference. I almost exclusively, with, with a few rare exceptions, tell people when following a diet, as an example, to follow it the best they can, but that they don't have to be perfect. That right there cuts out a lot of fear and anguish when people have a a miss, which almost everyone is going to. Very few people can be on a diet for a month and never have one deviation. So, Just the fact that they're told, do your best most of the time, but you don't have to be perfect can really short circuit and circumvent a lot of the fear around diet regarding supplements, not indoctrinating people to think that you're always going to need supplements and educating people on the fact that even the healthiest person has better days and worse days. And Everyone is human. No one is functioning like like a robot where they are impervious to anything. People have setbacks. That is normal. That is okay. We were talking before the recording about a gal, same gal who, who read Healthy Gut, Healthy You. And she said one of the most freeing aspects for her was just the fact that I talk about in the book that setbacks are normal and it doesn't mean like, oh my God, I've got to go do a follow-up visit with a functional medicine provider and then do another breath test and a stool test just because I've had some symptoms come back. No, if you figure out the plan that works for your gut, you can return to a, a minimal version of that for a short time to get you back to center. Just like, and I, I always use <laughs> these corny musculoskeletal analogies, but you know, coming back to the, the knee sprain example, you may have had to wear a brace and do some stretches and strengthening exercises. Now, let's say two years later, you're sitting a whole bunch, you're driving a lot, you're flying a lot, you're not exercising as much, and oof, your knee starts to ache. Would people be freaking out? Ah! Or would they say, "Ah, God darn it, this knee sprain. Okay, I got to stop being lazy about not doing any exercise. I'll do some of my stretches, do some of my strengthening exercises, and then... Boom. In a few weeks, their knee is back to normal. No big deal. Nothing to freak out about. So, I mean, yeah, I think that answers the question, but I just guess who you're getting information from makes a big difference because there are people out there who will tell you like, oh my God, you have an autoimmune disease. You can never have gluten. No, not with the best evidence from the best researchers supports. Now, sure, something to consider if you have an autoimmune disease, staying off gluten or mitigating gluten, but this need to ardently avoid gluten, not really supported unless someone has noticed a really strong aversion. But my, my point here, and pardon my, my long monologue, is the way these recommendations are being given, the framework in which they're, they're vectored makes a lot of difference. And I'll just say it simply, most of the time, these things are not as dire as they're made out to be. Meaning, If you have a miss on your diet, if you miss your supplements, if you have a bad day of sleep or a bad night of sleep, rather, you know, just get yourself back to center. Aim for a reasonable day-to-day. And if that's your foundation, yep, you're going to weather a couple bad days here and there. We all do, but not a big deal. And if you just keep with a general healthy plan, having had gone through the healing process prior, you know what you can go back to if you feel like you're starting to get a little shaky. And that's pretty much all you have to do. And you're so empowered when you have those few things operating together.
1: Yeah. I think it's so important. I think, I think setbacks can be such potentials for downward spirals for people, because if you have a setback, it can just create this moment where you're like, oh my goodness, like I, you know, I have to start over. It's like completely, I've undone everything i probably have regrown all these bad bacteria and it can seem like really dark <laughs> and that you undid all of the potential healing that you had done but it's good to know that that's not necessarily the case i will say i think i think it really comes in to so many people cuz i think people who are like really really sensitive to things and it kind of ties into the beginning we we're talking about you know over analyzing information and overlooking at studies and data and I think people do that themselves because they'll overanalyze their reactions to things and they are overanalyze everything that they're doing. They're trying to find connections about what's doing what, and they you know, want things to work so bad. So we make conclusions about what's working and not working when I think maybe just following a steady course without creating judgments every single second along the way might be more healthy. The thing that really sold it for me that made me realize I need to stop overanalyzing when I'm seemingly reacting to something is that when they do studies where they'll set up patients so that only like part of their brain can see certain objects, it's more complicated than this, but basically like only their left brain can see certain objects and only their right brain can see other objects based on how it's set up. Patients where only their left brain sees certain things, if they are... Asked, like, why they did certain things, the left brain will basically create stories and create memories to explain what it saw that didn't even happen. And I know it sounds really vague. I can put links to it in the show notes, but basically it's like, The language part of our brain that's trying to make sense of things can make up memories and make up associations and make up things just to make sense of the world when maybe none of that actually even happened. And when I read that, I was like, okay, so I just need to trust the process and not overanalyze like every single minute.
0: Yes, I I want to agree with you there a thousandfold. And one of the things I, I typically tell patients in the clinic, but I think this this narrative is also delivered via the book, is. I will worry on your behalf because it's amazing how exactly what you said. People will find something to try to explain what they're feeling. And what I wish people could see is through my perspective, which is all sorts of patients have all sorts of reactions. And what really matters is coming back to our clinical road and not getting pulled into, oh, did you hear about the new study that found that rice is high in arsenic? And I looked up on Google that arsenic can cause brain fog. I'm wondering if I have high arsenic. Okay, hold on. <laughs> you know, let's, let's Take a step back because we can see great results with brain fog if we keep working this plan Of healing your gut. But when people aren't feeling well, they're grasping for any straw. I remember I was there. I thought I had mercury toxicity. I thought my brain fog was from mercury toxicity. And I peed in a cup and guess what? I had high mercury. And guess what? That lab has now been sued for falsifying their lab ranges, which tells you how awesome some of the labs are in functional medicine. And I did the mercury detox and I got nowhere. Turns out for me, it was gut. And I really had to just heal my gut. And my brain fog went almost completely away. I mean, there's a few other things I had to kind of fine tune with my lifestyle, but yes, we're, we're searching for answer. We're searching for meaning. And I would just offer people, you have to shut off that voice of incessantly trying to grasp at any mechanistic straw that explains why you're not feeling well. If you're going to turn over your healthcare to either a clinician, granted you trust them, or a book protocol like from Healthy Gut, Healthy You or, or another book or program as long as you have confidence in the person. Because one of the things that is a travesty is when someone gets in their own way. And this happens in the clinic. They will, people will wait to see me. Then we'll go, I'll go through my entire analysis and I'll give them exactly what to do. Here, do this for 30 days. And they come back and they haven't done any of it because they got in their own way. Well, I was reading this, or the guy at Whole Foods said that, or the second day I was a little bit bloated, so I stopped. And then I read this blog that said, if you're bloated, you could have this. So I did that. And they come back and I go, well, great. Like The last three days have been useless because all you've done is just grasp at every straw in front of you. And there's been no scientific basis for what you're doing. There's been no clinical algorithm guiding what you're doing. There's been no parameter set up Like in in the book, we have people focus on doing a minimal amount of things at one time so we can establish cause, effect, and then learn from that. So while I understand how people want to get out of feeling unwell quickly, it really helps to slow down, take one step at a time, and find someone who you trust and follow the process because oftentimes that will get you through it more quickly. Even though, you know, and again, I get I've been there, like, okay you're doing good for two weeks. Now you're having a bad day and you're saying, something must be wrong. And then you want to jump ship. Don't jump ship because what often happens is you are on the right path. You just have to weather some of those small storms that come up along the way. But again, granted, you have to trust and be confident in the person who's giving you the advice.
1: Yeah. I love that so much. That was one of my recent other epiphanies and decisions I've had for me personally is that is to only work with health, health practitioners that when I go to them, I feel like I'm healing and not like I'm dying. So like if I walk in the room, I feel like empowered and, you know, we can fix this rather than here's everything that's wrong. So yeah, that and then just realizing that I don't really know what's happening with anything. So like we said, just trusting the process and not trying to reach all these crazy conclusions. And I was laughing so much when you were t- describing the patients. I know exactly what you mean about the Googling and then I got to do this and then I did this and then it's just, it's, it's crazy.
0: Yeah. And and I've been there, but it's also, it's, it's disheartening even to see.
1: It's well-intentioned. I mean, it's because we're just trying to be better.
0: Yeah. It's fully well-intentioned. And I I think patients who have a really hard time letting go, oftentimes they do really well with that limbic retraining because they're just so scared that they, they can't, relinquish control. And if they, if they can't do that, then they, I mean, they can't follow recommendations. They can't follow recommendations. They can move forward. So for some people, we have to kind of take a step back and get them to learn to relax a little bit, rediscover other stuff in their life, find joy again. I know that sounds a little bit airy fairy, but sometimes it's just, if you're focusing on the wrong thing all the time, those pathways in the brain, they are plastic. So the more you fire them, the easier they are to fire. So with the limbic retraining you retrain other parts of your brain that are more path toward happiness and that can do a lot to get someone to kind of let go enjoy their life even though yeah maybe they don't feel perfect but if they're enjoying their life and they're happy they can follow recommendations they can weather a little bit of symptomatic up and down. And that prevents them from getting in their own way. And that's, that's the saddest thing when someone has the tools in front of them, but they're too worked up or fearful to follow them. So I, I agree. And, and for whatever it's worth, I've been there. But you know, if you can calm down a little bit and, and follow a process, it, it will definitely pay you dividends.
1: Well, thank you so much. That I mean, that brings me to my final question that I ask every single guest on this podcast. And it's because, appropriately enough, how much I've realized How important mindset is for all of health, biohacking for everything. Just how important mindset is. So, what is something that you're grateful for?
0: Mm, Great question. So many things that I'm grateful for. Uh, (laughs) Something right now that I'm I'm grateful for, amidst many, is music. I've been tinkering with piano for a while, and I just feel really fortunate that I have in, in my apartment a piano I can play and. Just these great apps where I can have a really smart pianist teach me how to play a song. So I know that may not be applicable to everyone, but I guess maybe it comes back to a broader health lesson of having a hobby. And for me, it's really nice sometimes to shut off from clinic, from work, from writing, and just get lost. in. here's a song I want to be able to play. Feel it coming through your fingers and that connection where here's something I used to hear and love, and now I'm actually making that sound it's a really, I guess, meditative and enjoyable experience. So that is something that I am definitely grateful for.
1: I love that so much. That makes me so happy. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ruscio. This has been absolutely amazing. I'm so grateful for you and your work and everything that you're doing for the world, honestly. I will put links to everything in the show notes. Is there anything you'd like to throw out there for how listeners can best follow your work? Anything specific?
0: Well, thank you. I mean, I appreciate deeply the opportunity to come on here and just share my thoughts with your audience and, and try to hopefully throw them a line to get help if they're, if they're in need. And the, the best place to go would be my website, drruscio.com, drrusci You can plug in the, everything there and also the book, or you can just search for the book directly, which is called Healthy Gut, Healthy You.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate this. This has been amazing. And hopefully, hopefully I can bring it back in the future. You got this.